Well, good morning. We're excited to be jumping into our new series this morning on the life of David. And as we begin our time together, we just wanted to take a minute to teach you part of a new song that we'll be singing um, in the next couple of minutes. And so this is a song of praise. It's just declaring that Jesus's name is the highest of all names and that he is worthy of all our praise and that he's holy. So this is how it goes. Your name is the highest, your name is the greatest, your name stands above them all. All thrones and dominions, all powers and positions, your name stands above them all. Your name is the highest, your name is the greatest, your name it stands above them all. All thrones and dominions, all powers and positions, your name stands above them all. And the angels cry, This time of year, there is always so much new happening for our FSM students. They've started a new school year, they've jumped into new cell groups, and they're in the middle of raising support for all of their spring break mission trips. They've been sending out support letters, gathering prayer teams, praying and fasting, and working really hard to raise support for their mission trips. And we know that spring break mission trips have gotten pretty pricey in the past couple of years in a post-COVID world with airline travel and bus fares and all of that. So we as a staff actually decided we would do some time-honored traditional ways of raising support of our own to help just bring up the bottom line for our kids as they're trying to fund these spring break mission trips. So the first way we decided to come alongside our students in raising support is a homemade bake sale. I feel like I've seen those at the grocery store before, but man, what's better than spending $50 on a single chocolate chip muffin? Anyways, we've also tried out a classic lemonade stand. Nothing goes down smoother than a cold glass of lemonade on a freezing January day. Also, while you've been sitting through service this last month, we've actually been washing your cars for you as a way to raise some support 
for these trips. And so if you come out to the parking lot and you see that your car is sparkly, shining clean, you can go ahead and just Venmo us. It's the easiest way, no stress, no problem. Uh, it's a, our gift to you. Boy, do those cars shine. Great job, Jordan. Our final way of trying to raise support for our mission trips is that over the past year, we've been gathering things that have just been left in the church. So we've hosted our own church lost and found sale. Rochelle, those are some pretty fun and creative ways to raise support. Yeah. On a serious note, we are so thrilled and excited to see over 100 Fellowship Bentonville students raising support, gathering a team, and excited to go on spring break uh, to minister to the nations, to grow, to learn, to be discipled, uh, to be a positive witness to people that God wants to invite into his kingdom. And so we don't want this to be a student-only type experience. We want to invite the whole of Fellowship Bentonville into what we're doing as a ministry. We have two ways that we'd love to invite you in to those experiences. Yeah, the first way is that we need prayer and we're asking you to join us in prayer. You can pray for our students as they go, that their hearts would be transformed by the Lord. You can pray that those who they're ministering to, that they would experience life change for hearing the gospel, pray for safety, but ultimately pray that God's name would be made great and glorified and that people who don't yet know him would come to know him through our students. The second way you can support is, as we've just outlined in this video, giving financially. Whoever is currently standing on the stage about right there can give you some more details on what that would look like. But if you're interested at all in supporting any of our students on any of these trips, um, we would love to know that they have Fellowship Bentonville backing them in prayer and financial support to get ready for these spring break trips. We are so excited to see how the Lord's going to use our students, how he's going to work even in their lives as they are grown and matured into better disciples of him. And uh, thanks for letting us take up some big, big screen space on your Sunday. Yeah, morning. thank you. Y'all have a great Sunday. We love you, Fellowship Bentonville. Let me ask you to help our ushers out. <clears throat> they love to ush and they do a really good job. Uh, but we still have a lot of folks out there on the street trying to come in. So if you've got space to move in, that would help them out so much. So thank you. Hey, my name is Doug, and I get to work with Global Ministry. And I wanted to take a, just a moment, when, as they were talking about our spring break trips, I want to take a moment and kind of explain to you why we do these spring break trips. As they mentioned, we've got several trips from our student ministry that are going this spring break. We actually have an adult group that's going on a trip this spring break. And, and our bigger vision, why we do this, uh, falls into two categories. Number one, it is to advance the gospel on the ground where we're going. In other words, we want to know that when we go, that the gospel of Jesus Christ gets increased and spread because we were there. In fact, that's one of the first things we ask when we, when we evaluate, should we, will we go on a, on a mission trip? The first question we ask is, how is what we're going to do, whether it's uh, doing humanitarian work or uh, taking water filters out and, and sharing those things with people, which, was, which our students will be doing, both of those. How is that going to result in the good news of Jesus Christ being proclaimed and shared with the people where we're going? But the second reason that we send people on trips is because we want the people who go to be able to see God on the global stage. 
We want, we want those who go to be able to see how God is at work in other places, what he's doing and how he's doing it, because that does a couple of things for us. Number one, it, uh, it deepens our understanding and our commitment to the Great Commission to go and just tell folks about Jesus, but it also broadens our perspective of who God is and, and how he works, and so it has a great impact, and so when I hear... Kyle and Rochelle say we've got over 100 students signed up, and, and I know we've got uh, about 30 of our folks signed up on, on, to go on this adult trip. In fact, 23 of those adults have never been on a mission trip before. And so I get excited about that because I'm, I'm, I get to think these people, not only do they get to have an impact where they're going, but they get to be impacted by what they're going. And you and I get to share in that. And so let me echo a couple of things. Uh, that Kyle and Rochelle said, I'm going to ask you to do a couple of things for me. Number one, will you pray? But I'm going to be specific. Will you commit to praying every day, starting today until after spring break, for all of these people who are going on these mission trips? It doesn't have to be a really long, drawn-out prayer. It could just be, Lord, I'm lifting these groups up to you. Lord, would you give them strength? Would you give them uh, everything they need to be ready to go? Would you be with them? Lord, would, would you just let us see fruit for their labor? And would you change their hearts where they go? Would you commit to praying every day for all of these people who are going on these trips? And then secondly, would you be willing to participate financially with them? You can go on, either on our app or online for our student mission trips. Let's look for the Bentonville FSM logo. Uh, you'll see all of the different student ministries of our congregations listed. Look for the ones that say Bentonville. We don't want you giving money anywhere else. I'm just kidding, just kidding. Uh, but if you would like to support the, our Bentonville trips, you can either support an individual on that trip or you can actually just support the trip. That would be great. Um, our Amazon trip, I'm sure they would love some financial support. If you need to know how to do that, just contact me and I'll, let, I'll put you in the connection. And I just got word, I wish I'd known this first hour, uh, through your generosity to the gift, we're actually gonna be able to send $10,000 with that Amazon trip to help uh, to put a water well in one of those villages. And so thank you guys for your generosity for that. Hey, we've got a couple of other things going on that I want to call your attention to. First of all, um, as, we, as we mentioned when we began, we're starting a new series in the study of the life of David. Now, we're not going to go uh, really deep because we don't have time. We're going to hit some high points and low points in the life of David. It's going to be a great study, but as a result of that, um, our Spectra group, who creates uh, our artistic work, uh, has a new display out in the foyer, and they, those who created those things will be out in the foyer after services and would love to interact with you about what they've created and kind of where God took them on that journey, and they'd love to, to be able to visit with you about that. Secondly, starting next week, I'm going to be teaching a class called Personal Bible Study, and I'd love for you to join me. It'll meet both in the uh, first service, 845 service, and in the 1030 service, same class both times. Go ahead and sign up. I'll take a minute. I'm just kidding. Um, but do sign up. It's a six-week class, and here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about how can I read and study my Bible better. How can I read and study the, God, the Word of God better? So please, if you've never taken that, consider joining me in that. Uh, I checked the numbers. They're going up, but I need a few more, and it'd be great, so come join me. And then finally, uh, on February 6th, our Grief Share group is going to be launching, so I'm going to invite you to be a part of that. 
We get to celebrate this morning. It was really neat. First hour, we got to celebrate with the baptism. We actually get to celebrate with another baptism this morning. So I'm just going to call you guys' attention over there. Morning, fellowship. Um, I'd like to invite Ruby's friends and family up to the stage with us to celebrate this baptism. Good morning. In the summer of 2021, Ruby said she wanted to invite Jesus into her heart. We talked about what she thought that meant. Then I prayed the words I'd heard Mickey Rapier pray so many times before, while Ruby repeated them after me. Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I've done wrong. And she asked Jesus to forgive her sins and be Lord and Savior of her life that day. Since then, I've seen her bright light grow brighter. I often tell her she's so much sunshine as I see the qualities of Christ in her life. We're excited to walk alongside you, Ruby, as you lean on him and grow closer to your heavenly daddy through all your daily struggles and joys. He's always there with his arms stretched out wide to hold you. Never, ever forget that, sweetheart. He's always right there. Ruby Grant, I have a very important question to ask you. Is it your testimony today that you love Jesus with all your heart and you're choosing to walk with him all the days of your life? Yes, I do. Yes, you do. That makes me so happy, darling. It's my pleasure as your father and as your brother in Christ to baptize you in Jesus' name, buried with him in baptism, and raised to walk. Please. 
and praise your name together. Pray that we would be a people marked by our trust in your goodness for us and a people marked by dependence on your spirit. We acknowledge that we depend on you for life, for breath, in every season. So God, would you teach us to walk by your spirit, to live a life of abiding, So now we just take a moment to pray to you, to sing to you, and acknowledge our dependence. We sing this together, one voice. I depend on you. I depend on you. I depend on you. I depend on you. I trust you. We trust in your goodness and your plan for us. So we come today and humble ourselves before your word. Would you teach us your truth and help us to walk by your spirit. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, my friends. How are you? Good. Hey, Rocky, and Rudy, and Cinderella Man, or if you prefer team sports, Hoosiers, Miracle, Cool Runnings, if you like animals, Seabiscuit, or if you prefer more current movies, Million Miles Away, or the one we saw last weekend, Men in a Boat, 
What do all those have in common? Talk to me. Yeah, underdog stories. Yeah, we went to see men in a boat. We actually paid too much money to see them win a race, spoiler alert, that we already knew they won. Because we loved the story of an underdog coming out on top. I remember years ago, back when the Patriots were winning back-to-back-to-back-to-back, to back-to-back-to-back-to-back Super Bowls, Seth Prim tweeted out this. He said, watching the Pats win another championship is like watching a rich guy buy another Porsche. I'm finding it hard to cheer. And we know that sentiment deep inside. All underdog stories have some common characteristics. You can trace the plot line. We have an impossible situation at hand. We have an unlikely hero, and we find that against all odds, that hero slowly emerges. It's not an automatic. Well, today we will look at a story that fits all three of those characteristics. We'll launch a short series in the life of David. Now, David is a towering figure, actually not just in Old Testament, but in New Testament as well. More is written in the Bible about David than any other person except for Jesus Christ. And when we say David, you know we're talking about King David. David is one of my personal heroes, so much so that I named one of my sons after him. And yet, King David is not a superhero. In fact, if I had to describe David with one word, I would use the word passion. David, everything he does is big. He follows God big, but he also sins big. He's big in battle, and he's big in poetry and the arts. Everything is wholehearted passion in both his rise and even in his fall, and we will see that. No, every story, yours and mine included, has a context. We didn't just get here overnight. Something helped shape us. David's no different. Look at the context of King David's life. The Apostle Paul is preaching a sermon where he's giving Israel's history, and when he comes to David, he says, then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, and of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man, here's a key phrase, we're probably gonna lock in there the rest of the morning, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Remember, we said that one of the first characteristics of any good underdog story is that we have an impossible situation. Well, that is what David arises out of. You actually do not hear from David until 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. But to understand chapter 16, you have to look at the chapters before that and just see the, the mess that Israel was in before he rises. Back all the way to chapter 8, we see that the prophet Samuel was passing the torch of his leadership of the nation to his sons, and the nation rebuffs that. They don't want his sons for two reasons. Number one, his sons are corrupt. But number two, they say, we want to be like every other nation, not be led by a prophet. We want to be led by a king. God allows that. Even though his original intention was for Yahweh to be the king over the people, he allows them to have a human king. And so Saul is chosen as Israel's king. 
Saul was a pragmatic leader. He was given to rash decisions. He ruled for 42 years. Think about it, 42 years. You can shape the culture of a nation after 42 years of one leadership. And so it did. Saul, in chapter 13, makes the first of three tragic decisions to disobey God. And God chooses to remove the kingdom from Saul's leadership. So in 1 Samuel 13, God says, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man, uh-oh, here's the phrase, after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. We know now that Saul will function as a lame duck king. Translated, he is a poser with no spiritual power behind him. And yet he won't give up his throne lightly. In chapter 14, he's going to make a foolish decision that will cost the lives of many. In chapter 15, he gives partial obedience to God. And Israel continues in this long, slow slide until we come to God seeking out a man of his choosing, a man after his own heart. We don't get the name of that man until 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. Here's where we pick up David's story. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. Starting to narrow down where the king's gonna come from. I have chosen one of his sons. Now we're narrowing down who he is to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. This tells you a lot more about Saul than it does Samuel. Samuel, we know in his biography, is a brave and bold man. And yet he cowers at the thought of him having to go on a mission for God that would choose a new king who's not Saul. And that tells you a lot about an insecure, narcissistic leader. They will take anybody out who stands in their way to keep their power. Samuel continues on the mission, heads to Bethlehem, gathers up Jesse and his sons, and starts a selection process. Let's let the story of Scripture tell the story because it can do so much better than I can summarize. We pick up in verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. And Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And Jesse had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. Next verse, verse 11. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him 
and had him brought in. He was glowing with health that he is David. He had a fine appearance and handsome features. When the Lord had, then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Remember we said there's a second characteristic of the underdog stories we love, and that is an unlikely hero. Folks, you cannot get something more unlikely than this story. First of all, Samuel is sent to Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. Uh, It's because it's really fertile land, and it's where crops and livestock are grown. Bethlehem is a place where you grow farmers and herders, not leaders and warriors. Secondly, he's sent to go find a son of Jesse. Jesse is of the tribe of Judah. Judah is of the least of the tribes. The reason God had to specifically say go to Bethlehem and choose from Jesse's family was because it would not have occurred to Samuel nor to you and me to go to that town and talk to this family. Everything about this story is unlikely. And yet this is God's starting point. David, did you notice, was not even invited to the selection ceremony by his own father. In fact, when Samuel asked, uh, are these all your sons? His own dad doesn't even use his name. He says they're still the youngest. By the way, that's a Hebrew adjective that means the least, the littlest, the most insignificant. No one saw this coming because nobody could see what God sees. What do you think God sees? Well, we saw it right in verse seven. In verse seven, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider the appearance. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People, us included, look at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel's no different than you and me. We jump to the surface of the situation so quickly. You remember back in verse six when he saw Jesse's oldest boy, Eliab? He said, now surely this must be the Lord's anointed. There must have been something about Eliab that carried himself like a natural born leader. But God said, don't look at the outside. I am looking for something deeper. If I could change one thing in me, it might be the same thing you would want to change in you. And that is that I could see people the way God sees people. We just tend to look at the outward appearance. It's so natural. And we miss the inside. We see appearance and ability. We see experience and expertise. We see affluence and accomplishment. Let's be honest, folks. We live in Bensonville. Our world revolves around those things. And yet God, he sees those things. He just doesn't stop there. He pierces a little deeper and goes right to the heart and looks at the inside of a woman or a man. Yeah, it's true. God also acknowledges the outside. You can't miss the fact that verse 12 says that David was very handsome. But his physical appearance was not the point. The point of David was where his heart pointed. That phrase, the Lord looks at the heart. 
That's such a big deal. We probably should understand what the heart is. The heart is the leanings and the passions of your inner life. In fact, all spiritual leadership, let's say it more plainly, all of your life and influence is an overflow of the spiritual well on the inside of your heart. And that's true in every area of life. Your work life, your home life, even your recreation or play life is an overflow of your inner spiritual life. Your public life, your private life. Your emotional life, your intellectual life, your relational life, your family life, uh, your financial life, everything flows from the inside spiritual life. And I know that we live in a place where people look to compartmentalize the spiritual life. If you could use a word picture in your mind, we tend to look at our life like a pie, and we say our spiritual life is one of the pieces of the pie, and we would say it's an important piece, but it's one of the pieces. No, that's compartmentalizing the spiritual life. That's a bad diagram. The better diagram is to see life more like a target. And the bullseye, the core, is our spiritual life. And the inner spiritual life influences our emotional, our relational, our intellectual. Our whole life flows out. Men and women, we live from the overflow of both the direction and the affection of our hearts. It was Chuck Swindoll in his uh, book on the life of David that said, what man overlooks, God notices. Here's what I find interesting. Where was David when this selection ceremony started? His other brothers invited. Where was David? He was serving in obscurity, right? He was in the fields outside in Bethlehem doing his daily job as a shepherd. This is an unlikely hero because we're not talking about just a shepherd here. We're talking about a shepherd boy. And if you look at one old school commentary that describes what a shepherd's boy's life felt like on a Tuesday, this is what this commentary says. David must have watched eagerly the lengthening of the shadow, which told of the approach of sunset when he could drive his charge, the sheep, into the zareba, a sheep pen, for the night and return home. There is indeed no life more monotonous and enervating than that of an eastern shepherd. Now, we know what monotonous means, right? It means same old, same old. How about enervating? That's not a word we use anymore. It means draining. You would say soul-sucking. <laughs> There's no more job more monotonous and more sucking the life out of you than David's. So how does this shepherd boy use his time? Does he allow that monotonous, invisible assignment to steal away his heart? What can a man do? He's got a lousy job. No. He uses that assignment to see that it's fertile soil for his heart. It's filled with solitude and silence. And solitude and silence, well, that's a gym where the heart daily goes to get tra uh, trained. That's a place where the affections of the heart are cultivated and the direction of the heart is set. All in the loneliness of the hills, 
I mean, think about it. David becomes a shepherd who leads and feeds and provides and protects. Do you think those are gonna be skill sets that will naturally be needed, needed later? Yeah. David's gonna learn to get pretty good with a sling. That might come in handy in about a chapter. David is gonna have all that loneliness to pass the time and he's gonna cultivate his artistic and musical skills. That's gonna come in handy. David's gonna find his heart and the loneliness tunes his life into the maker and the master. And that's gonna begin to develop psalms that you and I will read thousands of years later and drink deeply from. See, God calls from the midst of the monotony. In other words, heroes are made on Mondays, ordinary Mondays, the stuff that we call the daily, the stuff that we call the ordinary, God calls training ground for the heart. In fact, Yahweh's, or excuse me, David's uh, great-great-grandson was King Asa. And Yahweh said to King Asa this in Second Chronicles, for the eyes of the Lord look to and fro. Can you picture God gazing now? Sees all, knows all looking to and fro, why? To strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Folks, from both Old and New Testament, the central call of God on our life is that we would love him with our all. Deuteronomy chapter six, the New Testament and the great commandment, that our heart would have its direction and affection set on God. We stopped at verse 12 in chapter 16. Let's continue David's story in verse 13. And there we see, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And what we see here is that David's story is a story of grace. Folks, what would grieve us as your pastoral team the most is if we walked away from an eight-week look at David's life and the conclusion we came to is David was quite a hero. No. There's one hero in the story, and verse 13 tells us who it is. It is Yahweh. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. David's heart, yes, was pointed to God, but spiritual power in his life was a Holy Spirit movement of grace. Even the anointing oil was a symbol of the Holy Spirit in that day. And the oil of the Holy Spirit never dried up in David's life all the days of his life. In fact, five times in this first part of 1 Samuel, we'll read the phrase, the Lord was with David. And that's pretty unique because when you read the Old Testament, you'll see that the Holy Spirit comes across, comes upon people to do God's will for a special purpose. But once that purpose is accomplished, God picks up his spirit and moves it on to another person. Not so for David. He left his spirit on David all the days of his life, which is why in a few weeks we'll see David's great sin with Bathsheba. And in Psalm 51, he panics and confesses and prays, please do not take your spirit from me. Because he knows if his spirit leaves, if the Holy Spirit's not on him, he's just gonna be another Saul. We 
which is a poser king with no spiritual power. How about for us as New Testament believers? How does the Holy Spirit relate to us? Well, the New Testament says that God does a whole fresh work through his Holy Spirit. Jesus promised it in his Gospels, and we saw it fulfilled in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, where God is no longer putting his Spirit upon us for a purpose and then leaving and putting himself upon another person. No, from that point on, the moment we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as Savior and Lord, much like we heard in a baptism this morning, the Holy Spirit of God comes and lives within us. He takes up residence inside of us. And he's very busy doing a good job at remodeling us from the inside out. He seals us, meaning permanently we are his until we get home to be with him. But while we're waiting to get home to be with God, He's busy at work making us more like Jesus Christ. And then to make sure that that job gets done well in community, he puts spiritual gifts on each one of us so that we can serve one another and cooperate and join God with the work of seeing that we become more like Jesus. Yeah, the Holy Spirit and his ministry is such good news to us as believers. And I didn't know it until my first year of college I had come to Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, a couple of years before that. But quite honestly, I knew nothing about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and my heart was not after God. The affections and direction of my heart were pretty much set on me, sometimes myself, but mostly I. And Jesus was welcome to come along and make me a better me and cooperate with my agenda. And you know what? I was miserable. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about right now because there is no miserable person in this room or watching online right now than the person who knows Jesus Christ as Savior but has not yielded their life to the power of the Holy Spirit because you know enough about the abundant life to see it, but you have no power to get there and you are stuck. And it's not God's plan. He wants to do a work of grace through the power of his spirit in you. Now, if you're younger than, let's say, 55 or 60, this song won't mean much to you. But because I'm in that zone in North, I remember hearing Keith Green's popular song at that time. The lyrics still ring true. My eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold. And I know how I ought to be, alive to you and dead to me. Oh, what can be done for an old heart like mine? Soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you, your spirit above. Please wash me anew with the wine of your love. Hey, if that is the ache of your heart, where you know Jesus and his saving power of your life, but you have not experienced his power of his spirit to change your life day by day, make you a little more like him, you don't have to stay stuck. 
I would have two words for you. The first one is yield, and the other one is trust. Yield, meaning turn, turn your heart, direction, and affection back to God. And trust that God will do what he says he will do, which is to fill you with his spirit and begin making you brand new. He's more passionate about that work than we are. He's just asking us to yield. Let's continue David's story and see where that takes him. We left off in 13, so let's pick up in verse 14. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and, and you'll feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. And he's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is fine looking man. So he's easy on the eyes, which helps. And the Lord is with him. In verse 19. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David who is with the sheep. Huh. So Jesse took a donkey and loaded with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and he entered his service. Saul liked him very much and David became one of his armor bearers. That would be one of your closest comrades, the person you want to go to battle with. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from God came upon Saul, David would take up his lyre and play, and then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Do you remember that third characteristic of the stories we love? We said that the unlikely hero slowly emerges into prominence. Notice here what David did after his anointing ceremony as king. He went back to the sheep. I'm sorry, but once you've been elected president, we do expect you to act a little presidential. And yet David goes back to the last thing God called him to do because the path forward was not yet clear. And that's a good lesson for all of us. David does the last thing, which was as a shepherd. He knew that God had anointed him and called him to the sheep, or excuse me, to be king. And yet, he goes back to tending the sheep until this opportunity of being king emerges clearly. Now, ironically, these two callings are not that different. Because both of them are servanthood. One, serving in obscurity in his father's family business. The other, serving quite publicly. But if he doesn't get this, he's going to be a disaster with this. How do we know that? (laughs) The story of Saul. The one who grabbed the power and used it for himself. No, all 
calling is a call to servanthood. Whether that's in a notoriety place of being the king or whether that is in an obscure place of tending to something else God is doing. God knows the arena he's gonna call you, but whatever arena it is, he will take you to a life of serving others. Hey, do you feel stuck in something that feels beneath you? Maybe it's monotonous, maybe it's menial. And are you tempted to think that if it's a God-sized calling on your life, it's gotta be bigger, it's gotta be somehow a little bit brighter But David reminds us that the woman and the man, after God's own heart, first understands Jesus' basic principle in Matthew 25, which is faithful in little before faithful in much. And faithfulness to serve is the calling. Maybe our call is to keep doing the last thing God called us to do, and we let him show us the next move and step in with the heart of a servant. But his call on our life will always be to serve, no matter the level of the arena, whether it's sheep or soldiers, it's all servanthood. I mean, think about this in your mind. Most scholars tell us that King David was 12. Okay, now picture in your mind, sixth grade boy down the hall at the very end of the elementary wing. 12, when Samuel anointed him to be king. Some say, oh, no, no, that's much too old. He was probably 14. Think eighth grade boy, and you're still not impressed, are you? And yet, he did not get anointed and publicly begin to serve as king in the fullness of it until he was 30. For 18 years, he serves in either obscurity, back in the sheep, or in great difficulty on, run, on the run for his life. And all of that 18 years was not a waste of time. It was the training ground of his heart that God would use in powerful ways. And don't miss how David came to the throne room in the first place. Saul was not looking for a secession plan. Narcissistic leaders never look for a secession plan. Saul was looking for a musician. How did David find himself into the court? Through his musical skills. Through those years of quiet where he's perfecting his chops or his licks, whatever they called them back then. And someone knew about that musical skill. And that gave him entrance into the throne room, which then gave him trusted ear and eye to Saul, which then caused Saul to turn around and take him into his confidence as an armor bearer, which then allowed David to understand the issues and the lessons of leadership in the royal court. All of that came because of his musical craft. Interesting. The musical craft honed in obscurity. There is nothing in our past that is a waste in God's hands. It is all potential use to either the present or the future call of God, sometimes that we cannot yet see. God is using that to shape and mold our character, our heart, the affection and the direction of our hearts. And that's gonna require humility for us to see that. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. And isn't humility really the issue anyway? 
because we cannot be women or men after God's own heart without humility. Humility will always show up in the affection or the direction of your heart. Now, I hope by now I've done a decent job using two words every time I talk about the heart. Affection, direction. The affections of your heart tell you what you desire. The directions of your heart tell you where you are bent. Is it towards self or towards God? And when the direction and the affection of our heart is towards God, we become women and men after God's own heart. And in due time, that brings great blessing to others. Psalm 78 is a psalm of Asaph. It's a really long psalm describing Israel's history. And it's a messy history. It has more lines of chaos than order. Until the very last two verses where it tells us that God brought order to that nation through a man after his own heart. The last two verses in Psalm 78. God chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to the shepherd to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart and skillful hands he led them. Shepherd boy became king so that he could shepherd a nation. It's a really good underdog story, don't you think? Would you stand with me? And let's pray that God would use the story of David to draw the direction and affection of our hearts. Direction and affection does not mean perfection. We will see the fall of David. But it does talk about where it's pointed and what we desire. Let's pray. Oh God in heaven, we are asking you now to shape our hearts towards you, to mold our character, to desire you, to be women and men who are after your own heart. Get our attention this day and this week. Start that process, we pray.
ask you to take a quick seat for just a minute. And I'm gonna ask uh, Seth and Joy Prim and their boys if they would come on out. You know that two weeks ago, we came to you and told you that uh, Seth is uh, feeling a strong lead from the Lord. He and Joy really in unity on this, that he's to step into a whole new kind of calling and a whole new kind of role, and that he would be leaving us at Fellowship Bentonville and starting next month as the associate pastor at Christ the King uh, Anglican Church in Springdale. And that means this will be his last week. And he kind of, we've known this is coming. doesn't mean we've liked that it's coming. But celebrate this in you. And uh, I, I told him this morning, I think it's fitting that we happen to have, even though it wasn't planned, this message this morning on his leaving because, Seth, you have embodied those, those characteristics. Your heart has been pointed to uh, the direction and the affection towards God. And as a result, we've been the recipient of that, haven't we? You've led with servanthood. This worship team would tell you. Yeah. As Seth's influence continued to grow here through the 19 years at Fellowship, our worship team is as strong and deep. Our worship shepherds I see over here and here and behind me, it's ridiculous how deep it is because of this servant leadership culture. And I just want to say thank you. Even in the way you're leaving, I grabbed him this morning and said, you know you're leaving as faithfully as you served us for 19 years. There wasn't a hint of senioritis in him. And uh, just a sense of wanting to set us up as well as possible. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate you. I've always respected you, but just appreciate you even more. So brother, you will be missed. Joy, you as well. You all are a powerful team together. And so we look forward to keeping friendship we look forward to keeping partnership. We look forward to just enjoying what God does in the next chapter. And we do bless it. And we'll miss you, but bless it. Would you agree? Yeah. Would you stand? And the privilege of praying over our brother and sister and their kids for God's favor to be all over them, how could we want, not want to join in on that? So pray with me. Lord Jesus, for this couple who we love so much, I thank you for my brother and my sister. I thank you for the way they have led me. I thank you for the way they have served us. I thank you for the 19 years of sweet and good friendship and partnership. And Lord, we are asking for favor of the Holy Spirit upon their lives and in this next step. Would you open up big doors of service for them? Would you give them deep and fruitful community? And would you give them fruitful ministry? Well, we send them and commission them in the name of Jesus Christ. You love them, we love them, and we're grateful. It's in your name we pray, amen. God bless you, church. We uh, love you. We have a prayer team. Tim is over here. We'd love to pray with you, pray for you right in front of the baptistry. And our community team is right in front of the community booth that would love to connect with you. We will see you next week.